welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to go over to Counterpunch and get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That is what we have now replaced the print magazine with. That is where you can go to get all of the great columns. Jeff Sinclair's gold every week, of course. All of the great features you're used to at Counterpunch. Many new contributors as well. Lots of diverse perspectives from all over the left. Go over to Counterpunch. You will help support this project. Keep us going. It's been well, 30 years, and we're still doing it, so we have a lot more in the future. Please do support this work. We greatly appreciate that. And, of course, we greatly appreciate all of our fellow lefties in the uh, online media space, and we appreciate the work of the Tempest Collective, and I'm very happy to have a member of the editorial board of the Tempest Collective. Aaron Amaral is with me today. We're going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to talk about some of the issues on the left. There's so much to discuss. Uh, Aaron is also a member of the Ukraine Solidarity Network US, which uh, has recently released a very important um, letter that I think we need to discuss as well. So with all of that said, Aaron Amaral, welcome. Welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me, Eric, and thanks to Counterpunch. Thank you for the uh, thank you for your time this evening and for your great work. So let's jump right into our conversation. I mentioned it already. The Ukraine Solidarity Network. Obviously, we're talking about everything related to the war in Ukraine and all of the uh, ramifications, both for the people in Ukraine, but more broadly around the world. So, what is the Ukraine Solidarity Network? Why was it formed? Ukraine Solidarity Network U.S. is an effort on the part of the broad left in the U.S. to to present a front of concrete um, solidarity with the the people of the Ukraine um, who are, as you well know, and as I hope the reader, the listeners understand, facing the kind of brutal effects of the, uh, the Russian invasion, which is you know cost thousands of lives and caused millions of uh, refugees and hundreds, if not billions of dollars in, in damage. And so it's really an effort to, from below, on the from the left and from the, from the perspective of the popular movements, to build solidaristic ties um, with, with, with the people of the Ukraine, with the movement, movements in the Ukraine, with trade unionists and people on the left in the Ukraine, um, and to do that as part of a, a broad left um, and a front in the, in the United States, in a context in which the, the 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 Russian invasion of Ukraine has opened up ma- massive questions for the for the international left, and really I think is a kind of qualitative marking point for the kind of evolution of uh, kind of the imperialist world system, and in turn um, has really divided in, in really fundamental ways um, the left in terms of how we're choosing to respond. Um, and so this is really an effort uh, to, for those of us who believe that this is really a, both a, both in principle a fundamental issue of the democratic rights of, of Ukrainians and the right to survive and the right to national self-determination, and also strategically the, the, the central importance of building these solidaristic ties if we ever really want to create and build um, opposition to, to uh, the imperial world system with the forces in Ukraine and the forces in Eastern Europe and, and elsewhere. It's a model, I think. So let's expand on that a little further if we could. I mean, can we talk through what are some of the reasons why you and some of the other people involved in building the Ukraine Solidarity Network, what are some of the reasons you felt compelled to do this? Was there anything missing on the left in terms of building those kind of ties that you're talking about? I mean, not only was there something missing, um, in many ways, the the response of the, of, of large sections of the left in the United States, for reasons we should talk about and are both understandable and incredibly problematic, um, has 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 been to see the, the the Russian invasion of the Ukraine in a way that completely erases um, the experience and the and the reality of the people in the Ukraine and the people in Eastern Europe, and sees it sees it exclusively through the lens of the question of U.S. empire, which we on the left, for very understandable reasons, have. Um, you know, been trained for generations to uh, to see as the as the singular and primary uh, kind of mover of the imperial world system, and while that continues to be true, it's it, you know, in, especially in the in the in the in the current world setup, it can't be the exclusive basis on which we understand 
um, you know, everything always. Um, and so the Ukraine Solidarity Network really grew out of a, of, a, of, a, of a meeting that took place at the Socialism Conference in Chicago in September with a, um, a, a, a Ukrainian um, activist and academic, uh, Yulia Yoshenko, who was, um, came to the conference specifically to speak about the situation in the Ukraine and the, his- the recent history um, uh, of, of, of Ukraine and to talk about both what's what's gone on in terms of the um, the Russian invasion, and to talk about the sort of diversity of forces in the Ukraine, um, she herself is part of the, the the left group social movement and and connected to the Journal Commons, but gave a perspective um, that you know was a very important one for many people um, in the conference, and out of that grew this effort to build a solidarity network, you know. Um, similar to not not this exactly the same but similar to efforts that we've seen in other parts of the world in Europe especially it also seems like one of the key uh goals here is to try to remind people on the left in the United States that uh, our our uh, positions on issues internationally are supposed to be guided by our politics and by our ideals and not by a, a cold and sort of um, uh, calculated geopolitics exclusively. And the, and the minute that your politics and your political positions become informed exclusively by geopolitics, it seems that you end up in pretty bad places and justifying pretty awful things. And I think that there are elements on the left that have found themselves in that position today. I couldn't agree more. I mean, really, fundamentally, without getting too historical or philosophical, it's a product of defeat that we, you know, for, 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 gener- for you know, decades, the left has really been in retreat and defeat. And in a context in which people give up hope on the possibility of a, of, of, of a pop, of a politic um, from below, of the possibility of popular organizing and popular resistance, um, you know, there is a way in which people retreat to a politics between states, um, you know, and see, the, you know, see their own state as the singular enemy. And therefore, you know, other states somehow is in a, in a better, even those other states like Russia, which are, you know, profoundly reactionary, um, you know, can be can then be can then be seen somehow as, you know, uh, on, on the side of good because they're the enemy of of this this imperial state. And it's a real loss of perspective, and it's a departure from from the historic left. Honestly, I mean that's a bigger conversation, but um, you know it's important to say that because uh, you know we're standing in a, we're standing in a really proud tradition going back you know well into the 19th century. About you know our starting point is really about um, you know in the first instance of the defense of democratic rights um, as a principle, and um, and and then as a strategic imperative about building uh, solidarity um, from below without any illusions uh, in any state or, or the kind of, you know, the uh, what's driving, uh, you know, the U.S. or NATO in this in this circumstance or the European Union. So one of the things about uh, the Ukraine Solidarity Network and many of the people that are involved with it, many of the people that have signed that open letter, myself included, um, one of the one of the issues is that I think that all of those people would call themselves anti-war, would call themselves voices for peace. And at the same time, there are many others who also call themselves anti-war and also call themselves voices for peace, who articulate a radically different perspective on the current situation and how we approach the prospect of peace. If you could, could you try to elaborate the distinctions between these two views and the extent to which um, we need to really, I guess, pick through the nuances of those positions? Yeah, I mean, on some level, it's really, you know, on some level, it's not that complicated because the question is always one, peace on whose terms and peace in what context. You have a situation materially, concretely, where a massive, you know, army of, you know, hundreds of thousands invaded a sovereign, a sovereign nation and, you know, uh, ensured massive destruction. And the people of Ukraine are facing this military might. And, you know, the, the uh, Putin's, Putin's regime has captured, you know, whatever, 20 percent of the Ukrainian territory, significant parts of the country. After a decade, you know, going back to 2014, after you know the 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 the, 
the invasion of Crimea, et cetera. Um, and so when we when the, when we, the question is, what does it mean to call for peace in this circumstance? Does it mean that we're saying that the current uh, kind of um, strategic situation um, is, is fine as status quo? We're okay with, uh, with leaving the, the Russians with their gains from, from the last two invasions? If that means uh, kind of uh, the end, the cessation of hostilities, um, and does and would it actually mean the cessation of hostilities? Because I think what we know, given the, given the dynamics of the, of the region, is that if in fact there were a ceasefire tomorrow, um, it's highly unlikely that that such a ceasefire would be at all stable. I think we on the left need to be very kind of cognizant of the relative strength of our own an impact and influence of our own size and forces, because, um, you know, what is our ability to, uh, to really to impact the kind of outcome at this, at this moment and what objectively would peace look like at this moment? Um, and so, yes, we all want, we all want, uh, we all want peace. We want an end to war, but the question is on what, on what, on whose terms and under what conditions? You know, the other thing that I that I think about when I'm trying to, I guess you could say, navigate through these somewhat awkward positions that we've all found ourselves in, and I think it's perfectly acceptable for us to admit that everybody on the left is in an awkward position when faced by the, an aggressive war that is being carried out by a country that's not the United States. We find ourselves uh, in, in somewhat uncharted territory for many of us. But what I think is important is to think about what peace would actually mean in Ukraine, because what it seems to be discussed in many circles, and I want to get your take on this, is essentially a peace that would be imposed on Ukraine, in, in essence, imposed from external forces, because it seems like if you follow many of Putin's uh, public, uh, you know, discussions or public statements about the matter, he basically has implied that he's to be negotiating with the United States and with the Europeans. In other words, U.S., Europe, and Russia, in theory, carving up Ukraine, and Ukrainian, Ukraine and Ukrainians are just to kind of accept this. And this is the twisted kind of anti-imperialist politics we're supposed to be advocating? Absolutely. I mean, the, the erasure of, of Ukrainian identity, the erasure of Ukrainian um, autonomy and agency across, across you know, these discussions from the level of high politics and, and Henry Kissinger to the discussions on the left are, are astounding and stunning and, and, and frightful when you think about you know, our fellows on the left. And I didn't mean to imply that this was not a challenging issue. It certainly is a challenging issue. And it's important to say how uncharted it is. I think it's important to think about this as kind of, you know, the, that the imperial world system has, has really changed in some fundamental ways from what's been, the, what's been stable since really the end of the Second World War. And that the, the rise of a kind of, you know, multipolar imperial system, um, however asymmetrical, however kind of hegemonic the U.S., remains is something new and it's something that the left hasn't have to, hasn't had to navigate for you know a few generations at least but it's not unprecedented but the point you're making about what it is that you, what it is what is what is you what do you what do ukrainians want what are ukrainians saying about this situation is incredibly important and it's what we need to be guided by one of the things i find most dismaying in my debates with people and discussions with people is People who sort of throw up their hands and say, well, we can never know. You could talk to, you know, one person and they'll say one thing and you talk to somebody else and they'll say another thing. Or there's so much propaganda. You can't really read through the propaganda. You know, um, we should be careful what we say is, look, I think it's it's I believe objectively true. And I have no doubts about this, that in the in their massive, massive majority, the Ukrainian people are unanimous in wanting to drive the Russians out of Ukraine. I have no doubts about that. And I believe that's true, you know, across Ukraine, including in Eastern Ukraine. And so, you know, the, the, the question of um, where we place the, the, that, that kind of sentiment, that democratic sentiment on the part of, of a people um, that are facing military invasion, I think should be front and center in, in what we're talking about. And then, and not to go too far, we need to then think about specifically the history of Ukraine 
and you know what what what's gone on to what's happened to the Ukrainian people over generations that this experience of an imperial invasion and one that very explicitly if you look at Putin's speech from February of 2022 seeks to destroy and deny the the agency and the history and the 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 existence of of Ukraine uh, as a nation and so and that's and that is a that's a there's a long and sorted and complicated history of, 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 of that. So when we talk about national self-determination in Ukraine, this isn't a 2022-2023 problem. This is a long-standing historical dynamic, um, and its, its roots have resonance in, uh, amongst the Ukrainian people in their response to this invasion. That's absolutely true. And a lot of these questions were were really central questions that were being tackled over 100 years ago in the Bolsheviks, the Russian Revolution, the question of Ukraine, the prison house of nations as the Russian Empire was known, the very concept of the left-wing understanding of national self-determination and the right of nations to self-determination comes out of precisely that period. And what you're alluding to, Putin's speech that really inaugurated this war was explicitly anti-communist, anti-Lenin, anti-Bolshevik in suggesting that Ukraine itself is merely a fiction, a creation of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, a ticking time bomb placed under Russia's feet to be you know, detonated in the future, right? So mixing together the classic anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy tropes about the Bolsheviks and, you know, uh, global conspiracy, while also combining that with an explicitly right-wing reactionary uh, uh, politics. And so I think we also need to be very clear that those elements on the left that find themselves defending this war and justifying it, even though they do it obliquely and tacitly in many ways, uh, they are explicitly endorsing a right-wing reactionary imperial revanchist war. Are they not? Absolutely. I mean, 100% absolutely. And it's one of the more one of the most disturbing aspects of this, which is to to think about the objective alignment of sections of the U.S. so-called peace movement with uh, the Putin regime, and 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 what what the, what that then means for the shape of for the shape of politics and the sort of excuse making um, and uh, kind of erasure of that that erasures that happen in that in that context. Um, we're t- this you know whatever you know without offering any excuses whatsoever for the United States and its history. Um, the the Putin regime represents one of the most frightening reactionary uh, you know regimes uh, um, in the in the in the world and 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 harkens back to a long you know anti communist um, imperial history very explicitly um, you know so uh, people should be very clear of who they're getting in bed with um, in these in these in these circumstances. So one of the questions that keeps coming up in debates on the left, and I'm constantly engaged in them, I wish that were not the case, but it is. Um, One of the issues that keeps coming up is the issue of making demands. If you live in the United States and you're on the left, who are you to make a demand of Russia that Russia leave Ukraine? Russia doesn't care what you have to say. Your only job is to speak to what the U.S. government should do or should not do, what the U.S. government needs to stop doing. That's all you're supposed to talk about on the left, isn't it? Right. I mean, that just I think that that grows. Out, that's a sort of distortion that grows out of the experience of the First World War of, you know, Karl Liebknecht's call for the kind of, you know, the defeat of one's home imperialism, but in a very different context, in a context where, you know, the imperial countries were directly at, at war with one another. Um, and it was never the case that the sole role of, of the left was to oppose one's um, own imperialism. Um, our, our role always was strategically to do what was best in, in defeating capitalism in the imperial world system. And, um, and this is why I think it's really important to focus strategically on, on why these, solid, these solidarity efforts are not just about sort of abstract uh, humanism or sort of blindness to the role of Western imperialism, but really grow out of a strategic imperative um, about how do we understand how we're going to build an international movement independent 
from the dominance of whatever nation states, under independent from the dominance of the imperialist world system that can fundamentally challenge imperialism and its logic in all its forms. Um, I think this is a profound moment for the left and marks a radical kind of reorganization in many ways for for um, for how the left is thinking and and you know where people align themselves. Um, this is gonna. This is this is not just about. Unfortunately, this is not just about Ukraine. This is going to be really about you know how we ch- how we choose to organize ourselves going forward in this new in this uh, new world order. Ah, but Aaron, it is just like World War One, don't you see? Russia's fighting a war against NATO. Putin said it himself, <laughs> right? Right. What? Who are? What aren't we talking about here? Who are not? Who are we not talking about here? Right. We're not talking about Ukraine. We're not talking about the fact that. The, the NATO and the West and the U.S. in particular are, have been very explicit and very careful about uh, not being direct belligerents, not seeing an expansion of, 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 of these wars. The United States, and Biden's been very explicit about this, has no interest in, in, in a direct military engagement um, with, with, uh, with Russia. And, um, and what, that, what that logic... Uh, by reducing the, you know, this invasion to simply one of, of kind of geopolitical machinations on the part of the imperial world system does is it, again, it erases the reality on the ground in Ukraine and it erases the, the kind of the agency um, and the desires of, of Ukrainians. And importantly, I think also kind of there's a real important opportunity here that's that we haven't had that that sections of the left have been attempting desperately to overcome, you know, since the 1980s at least, if not earlier, which is the kind of impact of 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 the Stalinist experiments in 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 the Soviet in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, where you know broad sections, unfortunately, broad sections of of the popular movements in that part of the world have have you know with illusions looked to the U.S. Um, and looked to uh, you know NATO as somehow you know, inevitably they're friends and for understandable reasons, because they've lived under the threat the, of, of first, you know, Soviet, Soviet repression. And now more recently, um, you know, Russian authoritarian rule. And we have to be we have to be an active engagement with these forces on the left and the trade unions and the forces of, of, of uh, you know, the movements of the national minorities Um to to have those conversations and the and the, in this case the concrete engagement to have those conversations requires in the first instance a recognition of their agency and their needs which is a desperate need to set, to defend themselves in the face of 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 of, of the Russian invasion we are not going to get a hearing if we stand back and and say you know we, and don't recognize what the, what that what the call is and simply say our only role here is to is to is to call out the the machinations of the U.S. and and NATO and and the European Union. That can't be our only role, and to do so would be an enormous um, strategic mistake and would cede um, potential you know uh, important allies for us, um, and you know going forward. Now, uh, last thing I want to just mention before we take a quick break, I want to talk about. I, I, Obviously, I was asking the previous questions a little bit tongue in cheek uh, to try to get at what is the real issue here for me, or at least one of the real issues on the left. And that is that broad sections of the left in the United States simply do not understand the fundamental nature of this war. They accept the framing as presented by Putin of a war between the Russians and NATO or the West with all of the supporting information and documentation that is true. NATO is an imperial monster. NATO has expanded itself. There are, there are constant, uh, every year we see military exercises that are provocative near Russia's border. All of these things are true. But to accept the framing of this war as exclusively about that is to deny so many other aspects of the war. And I want to get your comment on this. Why is it that those sections of the left have no analysis of the Ukrainian oligarch class, 
the Russian oligarch class, the, the conflicts between those oligarchs that go back 30 plus years, the desire by Russian capital to seize Ukrainian capital. Where's the Marxist analysis? Where's the analysis of the economic situation of the last 30 years? Where are all of the different levels of analysis that we are supposed to go through to uh, arriving at a a sound conclusion politically. I don't see much of that work being done at all. Just a simple US NATO bad, Russia lesser, Russia equals victim, I support Russia. It's as dumb as that. The left is 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 an incred- is incredibly weak and the absence of that analysis and the absence of of the of that kind of that sort of you know, uh, you know, multidimensional thinking and the kind of depth of historical understanding and knowledge, which is really required in this circumstance, is largely absent. And, you know, look, I mean, to be kind to, you know, I think, I think, you know, living in the heart of, of the imperial beast, as we do, um, the, you know, we live in incredibly, uh, you know, uh, as a general matter, people in the U.S. are incredibly, uh, largely ignorant about of happenings internationally, I have to say, and that includes uh, people on the left. In a more positive sense, it is also true that that framework of, you know, U.S. bad, and I'm going to lead with that everywhere I go, made, made very real sense for, for you know, for generations. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, through the period of the Cold War, through the period of the Cold War, through the period of, um, you know, the kind of unipolar moment uh, that that led to the Bush um, invasion of Iraq and, and the intervention in Afghanistan. There is a real logic to, to, to thinking in that way. Um, so, you know, I don't want to be too, too, too cruel, but there is a way in which we need to we need to now overcome that in, in, in this current in this current circumstance. Um, we need a different type of thinking, and the history is incredibly important. And understanding the kind of the the depth of the of the theorizing on the left, going back to the 1930s and earlier, I think is really important. Also, these are not new questions for the left, even if even if it does feel like you know uncharted territory for us here in the United States today. Um, people need to go back and 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 look at the history of of Ukraine, look at the writings on the issue of national self-determination, the questions of, you know, colonialism, um, you know, going back to the early part of the 20th century, Marxist writings on these questions, Marxist debates on these questions. I think, you know, uh, for those of us coming out of the Trotskyist tradition, there's a really important um, document that Trotsky writes in 1938 called Learn to Think, which he, which he raises hypotheticals that are very, very concrete and applicable to this situation right on the sort of precipice of the Second World War, uh, you know, where he talks about a hypothetical where the Italian fascist regime is arming uh, colonial rebels in Algeria against an ostensible de- democratic France, um, you know, what, what do workers, what do we say to workers in Italy? Should they stop the arms shipments to the rebels in Algeria? Um, because it's because it's their fascist state, you know, doing the arming. And Trotsky says, absolutely not. You know, we our starting point needs to be with with the kind of the 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 um, the interests of the of the colonial rebellion in Algeria. You can read that or not read that, but there's there's an incredible um, you know hi- history of writings on these issues that the left needs to reacquaint itself uh, desperately needs to reacquaint itself with. Okay, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to pick up uh, talking a little bit about how we got to this point with this divide on the left and uh, more importantly, how we move forward. How do we develop a coherent uh, set of demands and how do we understand what peace would look like, what arming Ukraine is going to look like, is looking like, and much more to discuss with Aaron Amaral of the Tempest Collective. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back.
are back chatting with Aaron Amaral of the Tempest Collective and the Ukraine Solidarity Network. Of course, there's so much to discuss. I could go on for hours and hours and hours as I have been for months and months and months. But let's talk about how we got to this point um, a little bit, because I think it's going to be well, to, for, for some, I think it's instructive to understand the history, but I think it's also instructive to understand how we get to a, uh, a better place than we are right now. So I guess I'll just ask the very controversial question first. Syria, what role did the divides on the left over the issue of Syria play in shaping the same divides that we seem to see reflected in Ukraine? I mean, in many ways, it's it's exactly the precursor to, to 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 these discussions that the kind of it's always I mean, it's always been the case. Well, let me back up. The failure from the get from by sections of the left to recognize the dynamic in Syria, to recognize the moment of 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 popular revolt and, re, you know, rebellion against um, against the Assad regime. Um, and to see it only as a kind of, you know, so-called colored revolution or was a, was another example of a kind of erasure of 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 the agency of a people um, actively rebelling against a, a, you know, an authoritarian regime um, in a context in which, uh, you know, representing the tail end of 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 a series of important um, massive revolts against kind of neoliberal dictatorship um, that we know as the Arab Spring. And from that's a, that from that starting point, you know, the failure to, to kind of have as your starting point and your perspective, the kind of the questions of 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 you know, um, from below essentially the kind of the questions of that popular revolt and to see the, that the fight in Syria solely and always as one of kind of geopolitics of states, um, you know, uh, uh, maneuvering against one another. Is precisely uh, the kind of mistake that we're that we're that we're seeing here, and so um, yeah, the, the there's always been going back to your previous question. There's always been sections of the left, um, you know, for for decades for that have had that perspective that their starting point is always has always been one of uh, geopolitics and has always thought that the friend that the the enemy and my enemy is my friend. Wait, is that is that the framing? Um, you know that those those states that oppose the U.S. empire were objectively uh, should objectively be held as allies. There's always been a section of the left that that thought in those terms. However, what we're seeing now, I think, in the, in the concrete sort of situation of of the Ukraine, are broader broader sections of of the left confused um, uh, by the question where they don't may not necessarily see. Uh, you know, deny the authoritarian, um, uh, the authoritarian government of Putin, or deny the reality of the Russian invasion, but then effectively stop and refuse to take the next step and say, "Look, we have to defend the rights of of Ukrainians to defend themselves," um, and 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 therefore stand back from 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 that important uh, recognition of the of the need for solidarity. Um, so yeah, the the the, the situation in, in Syria was an early precursor to to precisely this: the failure of the the failure of the of uh, the Bush uh, the 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 Bush to um, you know gambit to 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 kind of ensure the do, the unipolar dominance of the United States by a takeover of essentially a takeover and a dominance of Southwest Southwest Asia. Uh, to control the oil, the failure of that gambit um, in the or in the two thousands essentially opened up um, the kind of the rise of this of this in the kind of in the in the in the in the beginning of shows of weakness of of the U.S. empire, the rise of this kind of asymmetrical multipolar imperial world that we're starting to have to grapple with now. Syria is an early example of it, um, but there have been others as well. Yeah, and I think Syria also demonstrates another uh, pr- um, 
principle is probably not the right word, but maybe a framework for understanding Russia that I've put forward many times before. I wrote a whole article in Counterpunch just a couple of weeks after the invasion, uh, the Russian invasion in in, uh, February of last year. And that is that Russia and Putin have essentially internalized and replicated a Russian version of neocon thinking. Right. That 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 much of what Russia has done in Ukraine does follow the U.S. playbook in Iraq. Right. Substitute Al Qaeda for, uh, you know, Azov Battalion, substitute WMD for, uh, you know, U.S. bio labs and a new, you know, non-existent Ukrainian nuclear program. And you got yourself a new a neocon war in Ukraine. And in fact, what you see is also that many of those that uh, sort of parrot Russia's talking points have also, to a large degree, internalized a lot of neocon thinking, a lot of war on terror thinking. And I think the war on terror thinking was particularly relevant in Syria, where everyone who opposed Assad was just a terrorist. Simple, right? Right. You know, that that you don't have to then dig a little deeper and look into, well, okay, yeah, there are these factions that are getting arms from these sources, but there are also these factions that have been involved from the very beginning and you have to be right. So you have to do a little bit of work. And Syria was a complicated conflict and there were a lot of regional actors involved, especially once Turkey got involved, Russia got involved, Iran was involved, the U.S. was involved, you know, so there were many things at play in Syria. And in some ways, Ukraine is actually a lot simpler. Yeah, absolutely. And and the kind of the the kind of the throwing up of one's hands and sort of saying it's impossible to know or it's all propaganda or the kind of coming to sort of simplistic solutions um, is very redolent of the of of what we of what we saw in Syria. I mean, look, it's important to say that nobody um, nobody is denying um, a kind of reality of of what Zelensky is or the kind of a, a kind of predominance of a, a kind of particular kind of neoliberal politic that's dominant in Ukraine, the dominance of, 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 a, of a right wing politic in Ukraine. Nobody's saying that that's not true, um, but we are saying that that does not define the entire situation that, you know, and that, you know, to believe otherwise is essentially, you know, to not be doing the work that you're talking about, to not be seeing the, the you know, the existence of, of 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 a left in Ukraine, the existence of trade union movements, the existence of national minorities who are also fighting for for against the Russian invasion, um, you know, uh, et cetera, on on and on and on. Um, so the idea that somehow we can't do this work or it's all propaganda, um, or you know, is is incredibly um, disheartening and needs to be um, you know struggled against. And and yeah, it's incredibly complex and it's only going to get more complex um unfortunately in this in this in in this world i was i was watching your discussion i think from a discussion you were involved with um yesterday talking about the kind of role of israel and um just by way of an example and the kind of duplicitous kind of role that israel is is seeking to play you know um in ukraine and vis-a-vis russia with whom they have a long-standing alliance um you know, it's 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 incredibly challenging, especially given the kind of the the sort of you know now the sort of inc- incredibly reactionary nature of the Israeli government. Um, you know, the, the you know, and the, but it's a concrete example of why the this type of solidarity is important um, and calling attention to um, the fact that there's there are other forces on the ground in Ukraine. The you know the comrades in 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 the social movement in Ukraine with whom you know, we're, we're in touch, you know, have released statements in the past in, in defense of the Palestinian, in, the, in defense of the Palestinian movement in opposition to, to the Zionist state. Um, you know, there are very, conc- there are actual forces on the ground there that also recognize this complexity. Um, and there, you know, there's, there's the possibility of building um, that solidarity. Uh, so, but yeah, it requires work on our part. Um, and that, but that work is possible, and and fortunately, the, the, there are people on the ground there in in Ukraine and in Russia and in other parts of the, uh, that we should be talking to and listening to. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, January nineteenth, um, this Thursday, I think the nineteenth to the twenty fourth, there's a call coming out of Russia for uh, international days of action, um, uh, anti-fascist action. I'm um, in, def- in in defense of uh, uh, calling for the freedom of. Pro- political prisoners in, in Russia. 
um, you know, there's there's a there's a there's a left in Russia too, that's that that has has an analysis and has things to say, um, and that is actively campaigning uh, to 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 end this war, and and we should be thinking we should be magnifying their voices too. Um, Absolutely, that's an this important is a disaster. Yeah, this is a disaster for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And that's an important point you just mentioned. It's something that I've brought up many times before. If you heard my interview with Boris Kogorlitsky on this podcast, then you know we've talked a lot about the fact that people in the West don't even comprehend that Russia has a social society that it that that there is a politics internal to Russia that there are movements and there are contradictions and there are dynamics that have to be understood and one of the points Boris made and I thought was a good one was that in fact uh, an argument could be made that most of the reasons for Putin's launching of this war were domestic in nature and had nothing to do with NATO but that's uh, uh, a discussion for another day um we have limited number of minutes left so let me just move on. And I guess I'm sort of circling back to something we talked about earlier. And that is what is our uh, what is it that we're demanding here? What is it that the Ukraine Solidarity Network has written? What is it calling for? Because in calling for uh, Ukrainians to get arms from wherever from wherever they may, it is obviously implying the you know, the elephant in the room that is getting arms from the United States and from NATO. So the real question then becomes if uh, if you support as i do the right of ukrainian people to uh uh to defend themselves and to have self determination which means to be uh able to get the weapons necessary to fend off the russian invaders if you believe in that then the obvious question if we're responsible that we have to ask is how do we know when is enough how does it stop how does this spigot turn off once it's been turned on. Is that even possible? And do those who say that it is impossible have a point? We need to step back and think about who we are and what is it that we actually are, are able to control. The, the Ukraine Solidarity Network is not in existence in the first instance to campaign for, for increased armament or increased Pentagon budget. Not at all. Uh, we defend the rights of Ukrainians to get arms from wherever it can. We recognize that in this circumstance, you know, that that means importantly, the United States and, and other NATO countries. And we're not going to campaign to stop that. But the, that that issue is not our primary concern. There are sections of the left that think our primary job is to stop that. And we think that's that's crazy. That's that, you know, and that's goes against, the, the, you know, a, a fundamental principle of of defending the right to national self-determination. But our primary goal is not to be campaigning um for arms, uh, we 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 are not going to stand in opposition to um, to those shipments. Um, we think that they 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 do have the right to get to get arms from wherever they can. The problem the the problem is that as Putin continues to escalate, as Putin continues threatening another offensive, potentially bringing Belarus into the into the war, um, the 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 need and the the objective need of 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 of, of the Ukrainian state. Um, for for great, ever greater armaments to defend itself grows and grows and grows. This is an incredibly dangerous dynamic. This is a dynamic inherent to the imperial world system. So how are we going to stop it? We, we have to learn. We have to stop imperialism. We have to stop capitalism, who creates the system. Ultimately, that's what it has to be. I mean, and and that's you know that's not that's not delusional. That's a reality, folks. Unfortunately. So how are we going to do that? Let's talk about that because. Um, it's not going to be up to the up to the left, you know. To what extent the, this uh, there's a there's a kind of uh, incre increasing rate of arms, or this this war continues to escalate. Um, our you know our job has to be um, we have to have a different type of task, um, given our given our given our size and our forces and our uh, and our capacities at this stage. I wish we were in, in, a, in a situation where we could control the flow of the arms and, and whether and how uh, peace is going to occur. Um, but, you know, we have we have a ways to get there. And the question is, how are we going to get there? You know, very few people, in my view, who are. Um you know, who voice some of the uh, some of the Kremlin's positions, whether they agree with them entirely or 
or not. Uh, some of the people are blatantly dishonest, but others are actually uh, sometimes uh, so sort of honest. And one of the really honest people I know, whose name doesn't matter, I won't mention his name, but one of the really honest people I know made a, made a statement that I thought was maybe the most honest I've heard from anyone who disagrees with me on some fundamental questions about Ukraine. And he said, listen, everybody badmouths appeasement. I'm going to say outright, I'm in favor of appeasement. I would be in favor of appeasement for Putin to avoid the potential of World War III. I think it's a perfectly sound and sane trade-off. And I said, fine, if that's your position, that's your position. I think that's crazy. I think it's crazy to think that way, but that's a perfectly honest position. I don't believe most of the people on the left are that honest, but I do think that many of them ultimately are voicing something along those lines. Whether you want to call it appeasement to invoke Neville Chamberlain and the 1930s leading to World War II, or just a generic concept, they are advocating something like that, aren't they? People look, there's a good reason. People people don't want to see war. People don't want to see suffering. People don't, and it's and it comes from a very good place. Like people look at what's going on and they're fearful. And we should be fearful because it's frightening. It's an existential threat. So again, you know, unfortunately, the question then becomes, what are we going to do to change this? How do we, given our relative lack of power, how what are we going to do? Because appeasement, you know, we could have that debate. But appeasing a Putin, I think, as we should know, watching decades of of, of his regime, is not going to make for a more peaceful um, world, and it's certainly not going to make for uh, a better situation in Ukraine. Um, neither is a kind of a kind of uh, uh, sort of a delusional pacifism. Yes, we would we would like to see an end to suffering and war. Absolutely. The question is how do we how do we get there and how do we achieve that and that requires again really hard um, hard arguments uh, because the, you know it's a, we're in a we're in a very we're in a very uh, uh, tough system and it's a tough situation and the and the and the world system unfortunately doesn't seem like it's likely to get uh, more peaceful now um, you know whether we appease or not and so again to me there's a strategic imperative behind all this which is what are we doing to rebuild a left and, and forces, uh, popular forces around the world that can, can ask this question seriously and try to overcome the dynamics of, of the imperialist world system. That's a huge task, but I don't think there's another, I don't think there's another, you know, there's another way around this problem. I think it also is important to note that, and and it should be brought up in this discussion, that you know there are large sections of the global South that are either not taking a position on this conflict or uh, are kind of picking and choosing, you know, which side to take on a given issue in order to kind of well reap the benefits, depending on how you look at it, play one side against the other, put themselves in a better position politically from a practical perspective, whatever you want to say, but large sections of the world either don't care to take a position or are refusing to. Now, here's the question I really want to ask. What does that tell us? And does it, and is there a difference between those countries' governments being unwilling to take certain positions and people around in the global South and what their perspectives are? Because again, I think that what uh, a person's opinion might be of Ukraine might be informed by other things that are happening, say, for instance, whether it is uh, the French or the United States or the Russians or the Chinese that happen to be in your African country exploiting your minerals and your resources and doing their normal neocolonial activities, right? If you're in Mali, you got Russian occupiers backing a military junta, just like you do in Sudan, just like you did in, in, in Central African Republic and Burkina Faso. But there are plenty of other countries where they would gladly welcome the Russians in a trade-off to get rid of Western imperial exploiters or Chinese exploiters, right? So where does the global South fit in in this conversation, in this dynamic? And to what extent is the Ukraine Solidarity Network in conversation with elements in the global South on these issues? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about the global South, we need to, as always, we need to make an important uh, distinction between uh, the nation states of the quote unquote global south and the people and popular movements um, of 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 those countries, and so um, you know what the what the Ukraine Solidarity Network seeks to do, um, among other things, is very concretely 
to build uh, to build alliances between the solidarity movements of uh, with with the Ukraine and the solidarity movements um, in in other parts of, of of the world because we see that there are common issues here. Um, coming up later this month, we're going to be hosting a um, uh, an event that it's going to be recorded um, and um, uh, run on the Real News Network, I believe, um, which is specifically going to bring together solidarity activists um, from different from different solidarity campaigns to talk about precisely this question. Um, and you know, um, we have comrades in this in the Ukraine Solidarity Network who come from all other a variety of other solidarity campaigns for Western Sahara, from the Palestine movement. Um, and, and, you know, the, the rise of the solidarity, these issues on the left, um, are not at all unique to the U S or to, uh, or to Western Europe. Um, we're seeing these same debates, um, arise in different parts of the world. And so it's not just, you know, the points you make about Mali and other, you know, particular countries under direct, the direct experience of this or that imperial power is certainly true. But I think in overall, in general, you know, even if you're not living in a, you know, if you're in Chile or Argentina or, you know, I don't know, other parts of the world that um, the, the sort of particular colonial and imperial experience is going to define, um, you know, importantly, ways people think about this stuff. But I think that we, you know, we need to be building and the Ukraine Solidarity Network seeks to be building the connections, um, you know, uh, both very real in terms of human to human campaign to campaign connections, but theoretical also um, uh, between these solidarity uh, campaigns, because we recognize that this is really an issue, um, a, a kind of a global issue that transcends um, the issue of Ukraine, whether you want to talk about, you know, uh, Taiwan or, or, or Syria, um, uh, Palestine or Western Sahara, um, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also important to note that, you know, many of the voices that have been active on this issue have been uh, providing an analysis of issues relevant to the global south all along, whether it was the impact of uh, Putin's very cynical manipulation of food exports uh, during the harvest season and the impacts, the very predictable impact that would have in Africa and in the Middle East and elsewhere, playing on a lot of these divisions. But I think one of the other points that you were getting at at some point in our conversation, I think it's worth mentioning as well, is that the, the Ukraine war has also brought a lot of the political questions in the former Soviet space into our, I guess you could say, modern discourse, right? Like up until up until 2022, I think it was very difficult for a lot of people to think about Russia as a colonial power, as the peoples of Russia having been colonized in the way that we think of the indigenous people in North America or the way that we think of the history of Latin America or what have you, right? That Russia somehow had managed to evade the 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 discourse around its colonial history, its very brutal colonial history, particularly when talking about peoples of Central Asia or the Tatars of Crimea or whatever example you want to point to. Yeah. And I think one of the other one of the other points that needs to be brought out is that building the Ukraine Solidarity Network is also being in conversation with those peoples that have been on the receiving end of Russian colonialism and connecting that to some of these theoretical, um, you know, ideas that have been percolating on the left for a long time in our Western context. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, this. I mean, part of the part of the part of the dynamic that's that Putin unleashed, um, you know, has is 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 fascinating to watch and and also offers these opportunities so if you think about you know the kind of mass exodus of hundreds of thousands of of you know essentially uh refugees from Russia running away from the from the conscription and uh going into for example Georgia or Azerbaijan and the dynamics the kind of internal dynamics that are unfolding there um and the kind of what what that then throws up and um you know, uh, for good and for bad. Um, you, you think about the popular up, uprising in Kazakhstan and the um, the kind of role of Russia um, there, or in the Armenian um, in the Armenian um, war. And you know, it's opened up. It should have. It should be opening up people's eyes to these kind of the kind of broader 
precisely as you say, the kind of broader dynamic and opens up the possibilities then of, for the first time, really in generations to build, um, you know, very real uh, um, engagement and, and solidarity ties across the world. I mean, this is why it's, this is why this, the, the kind this is why um, this is so important, you know, Okay, and in in closing, I just want to give you an opportunity to tell people um, if they are interested in 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 building these solidarity ties with uh, the people on the receiving end of Russia's invasion and uh, those that have been working to further the cause of Ukrainian solidarity. Where should they go? How should they get involved? What are any of your suggestions, whether it's with the Ukraine Solidarity Network or anything else you wanted to mention? Ukraine Solidarity Network at googlegroups.com. Uh, you can reach us. There, there are these, the the statement um, that we just the public statement that we released is still seeking signatories. Um, we're asking people to to read the statement and sign on to the statement. Um, we will be in, in addition to events that uh, the, such that I've mentioned um, this month. There's uh, uh, events and activities that are being organized to in, in to commemorate the in, the date of the invasion in February of of next year. Um, it's important for people to carry these, to think about these things and to carry these arguments into their local spaces, into their local organizing, and to think about concrete solid aspect, concrete solidarity that can be taken um, uh, f- from a local perspective um, in terms of material, material support to the people of, of Ukraine, reaching out to the local Ukrainian um, communities and just sort of asking what they're doing and how to support. And there are ways of offering that support you know, that, that for, for everybody of whatever the political stripes that you should be comfortable with in terms of very basic um, humanitarian support to uh, the type of political a- agitation um, that, you know, we're undertaking uh, uh, here as well. But we encourage people to um, check out the Ukraine Solidarity Network US um, and uh, check out our events, sign, uh, please sign the letter um, and, uh, you know, Look out for those opportunities um, locally. Aaron Amral's been with us today. He's from the Tempest Collective, the editorial board over at Tempest. He's also a member of the Ukraine Solidarity Network. Aaron, thank you for all of the great work, the you know, for helping to build this very, very important organization and uh, for all of the work that you're going to be doing in the near future. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, for the work that you're doing. Um, and thank you to Counterpunch again. So it was a pleasure speaking to you. Listeners, thank you as always for all of the support. Don't forget to go over to Counterpunch and get your CP Plus subscription. That's appreciated. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again next time. Mm-hmm.